This is uh, BSing with Sean K. I'm your host, Sean Neese. And uh, bullshitting with Sean Neese, in case you didn't catch the abbreviation. And on this show, I talk with people pursuing their creative and intellectual passions and living outside the box. And today, my guest is Patrick Devani. He's an actor, filmmaker, and editor. Uh, He's primarily known for crime-based television programs. And he created Zombie Hunters, City of the Dead. And uh, you you also um, you co-founded Devereux Films, and you, mm-hmm. you you began your career as a musician, and we'll, and we'll get into that like a bit too. Sure. Uh, and he also has uh, written thirty screenplays and acted as general background, as well as small featured roles in over twenty, uh, over thirty twenty major television programs. And you're also you're currently working on uh, New Zero, One Flash of Light, and Identity Check. That's three of your scripts you're, that are in production now, right? Um, yeah. Um, hello, everybody. I, I'm Patrick, and um, and uh, yeah, there's a couple of things that we have in production. Um, uh, scripts that are ready to go. I wish that we had a better situation right now to do that in, but we don't. Um, but uh, yeah, my, my last uh, my last uh, major. Um, short film that I, I came out with was Identity Check, and that came out in uh, uh, earlier this last year, last year, and uh, it's still in the festival circuit. It's doing really well considering that there's almost no audiences, but most of those festivals, uh, including my own, um, are uh, all pretty much online right now for the foreseeable future. Oh, so people could just watch them from home, like just... yeah, for the most part, yeah, nice. yeah. Nice. Well, I guess in a way that brings like a larger audience. It just doesn't have the same in-person festivities as a film festival. You film festival usually would. Right. Yeah. I mean, we. I have. I um. I co-manage the um the first contact film festival in New Jersey, and uh, we and that's every May, and it's been going on for seven years now. And and the the small theater that we had could fit maybe forty people at the most, but we couldn't do that at all last year, so we went online. And we had over two thousand viewers, <laughs> so yeah, it's uh, it's it was a bit of a jump, yeah, which is a nice thing. But yeah, yeah, and, but, yeah. and horror and sci-fi is your main influence. I, I met you originally on the last day of a, a horror class I was doing, a horror intensive, taught by Pam- Pamela Kramer, who's also been on the show actually. And I did a scene from The Hills Have Eyes, and I, I did kind of like a crazy kind of <laughs> voice with it and everything. And uh, you were you were one of the the directors or casting directors that uh that watch the the final performance of everything and you say you, you do that class a lot the the oh yeah um uh, pamela's class yeah I, I i love i love doing that pamela kramer's awesome she's a, she's a wonderful casting director and um and uh and a fantastic acting coach and once a season i she invites me in to to see the see the class and give them pointers and then we just have a discussion about things afterwards you know like i did with your class and and uh, I think I think it's a wonderful thing. I don't know anything else like it. You know that that one that one horror class that she does. I have I've never seen anything like it. So 
yeah as soon yeah. as i saw it listed there like I, I knew i had to take that because it, it just looked like a unique experience especially like when i took it it was around october halloween time so it was just like a neat thing to do right yeah, yeah. perfect timing for that, that sort of thing yeah <laughs> so, so i guess we'll start at the beginning how did you get into uh working in the entertainment industry because you you do more than one thing you've acted you also uh you know director writer uh, so just, so how, how did you how did you get into all that um I, I started out as a musician when i was when i was maybe 11 years old uh i was already forming rock bands by the time i was 12 and 13. um and uh it's fun it's funny i i just was in contact with someone from my first band from seventh grade not even an hour ago so that was kind of cool she's a professional musician today so, um, so, uh, that was really cool, but, um, but yeah, I started out, um, doing that in high school. I started playing nightclubs when I was barely 16 years old. And, uh, I did that for a number of years. And, um, when the music career kind of ended, um, I went into, I was doing lots of different jobs, but I always wanted to do something with film or something with music or combine the two. And in 2005, I started seeing a medium people were doing some pretty well-produced, things on public access. And I said, I don't know anybody in the industry. I don't know how to go about getting a contract or doing anything like that or having a film made, but I know enough creative people that we could do this. And I always wanted to see, you know, George Romero's Night of the Living Dead as a TV series. So I said, well, if they're not gonna do it and they're not gonna let Mr. Romero do it, um, I'm gonna make my own. And I got a number of people together and pretty much everyone I asked from the beginning said yes, and we started shooting that um, um, April or May of 2006. And we were on the air by the end of 2007 in public access. And that's the show is still played all over the country on public access servers everywhere. And you said that it was one of the first shows to bring that to TV, the sort of Romero style zombie thing. And then uh, this was before oh, yeah. Walking, Walking Dead made that popular. Oh yeah, yeah. This is this was at least a year before that. Um, uh, yeah, we were the very first in pretty much that I know of to this day. We were pretty much the first in the world to ever do that. So, so that was you know I loved that growing up as a kid. I've always loved George Romero stuff. All the people that I asked are all fans, so we were all into it, and um, and we just got everyone together. You know, one of my oldest friends, uh, Chris Murphy, became my producer. Um, good friend of mine, Rick Martinez, who I'm related to, um, he, he, you know, also related to, he, uh, um, you know, he came right on and we got a guy named Mike Scardillo, who's, you know, he, he came out of nowhere. It's a friend of a friend of a friend. And, uh, he's one of the best, um, makeup and special effects artists in New York. And it just happened to a friend of a friend of a friend, you know, we just ask around, you know, we rounded out with that two of my, two of my other friends, uh, Terry and Lynette. And we, uh, we had the first zombie hunters crew. And we started just making episodes from there. And when you were into music, you you, you were into the the punk scene because I know you played at CBGBs and oh, yeah. stuff like that. And and with punk, there's the the DIY spirit and everything. And I I know that there's that same spirit with horror movies. So do you think that's why you were kind of drawn to the two, like punk music for music and horror for movies because of the DIY aspect of it? Absolutely. Um, um, back in the 80s in the punk scene, the new wave scene, and even just like the general rock scene, um, everyone was just doing their own thing. They were trying to figure out as they went along. You know, I mean, I was I was playing nightclubs the same time Anthrax was little, these little places, you know, I mean, like it's, you know, everyone was doing their own kind of thing. And you had to because there was no guidelines. There was no American Idol. There was no The Voice. There was nothing like that. 
you had to figure this out. You knew no one. There was no internet. You had to go out. You had to play. You had to make your show. And you had to hope that it hit. And, you know, 99 times out of 100, it wouldn't. But you had to keep going. With it. And the people that stayed with it, some of them made it. You know, and uh, and that and that was the same exact thing with this. There was nothing I could do about not knowing anyone in the film and TV industry. So I just had to go and try this, you know, and we went out there and we put this on TV. And within two years, um, we got uh, we got noticed by uh, Rob Housechild, who uh, a friend of mine, my friend Chris DeLuca, um, he actually brought a lot of people around to see us and everyone kind of passed. But but uh, but Rob from Wild Eye releasing came back about two years later and said, wow, you guys are still doing this and it's getting better and it's and it's continuing. And I, OK, I want to try to work this out. And he got two of our DVDs out, he got eight episodes, national distribution on DVD. Um, we were all at uh, Monster Mania convention one night when I got the phone call that it wound up in 36 stores one in one evening. <laughs> so I was like, OK, this is fantastic. So this idea we had. You know, it, I mean, for me, that's the same as getting a record contract. You know, it's it's you know, it's it's all over the country now, you know, and all over the planet. So, so so why do you think horror has that DIY spirit too? And I guess to a, a sci-fi a bit maybe, but I know like horror really has like you know that in a lot of independent filmmakers, I, I feel like that that that's what they're they're drawn to because it, it kind of has that like a, is it the, the the use of practical effects or what is it you think? I, I think. In a lot of horror, it's just it's just easier to do. It's it's the best way to cut your teeth, I think. Um, it teaches you how to how to how to create tension, how to create drama. Um, it teaches you how to use special effects. It teaches you how to do a lot of different things. But most horror films are not period pieces, so you don't have to worry about wardrobe. They're not out in space, so you don't have to worry about set building. You know things like that. Like even like classic zombies. It's like zombies are just people. You don't have to make up crazy fantastical monsters like you know jim henson and farscape you know you have to just you know do it convincingly but you know these are just people so it's you know if you have a slasher flick the slasher is just the guy you know he's attacking just regular people in this time period so it's an easier way to do it on a much lower budget um people are more forgiving if it looks a little rough if it sounds a little rough if it's a horror flick you know if you were trying to make you know um you know wuthering heights you know, and it was it looked bad and sounded bad. You couldn't pull that off, you know. But but if it was a slasher flick, you know, there some most people almost expect it to be a little bit rough around the edges. Because the grittiest kind of adds to the feel. Yeah, it, and it does. Yeah. It does because all those movies. I mean, you know, you know, one of the most classic horror films of all time is is Carpenter's Halloween. That was made for nothing. They had nothing. They didn't even have permits for some of the stuff they did. They would just go around and film. And they have Jamie Lee Curtis running in and out of a house, and they had no insurance, they had no nothing, <laughs> you know. So, you know, and and um, because they had, they knew how much money they had, and it's as simple as that, you know. So, so that's kind of set the pace for those kinds of things, you know. Hills Have Eyes and those kinds of films, Evil Dead in the early '80s, those kinds of films. I mean, they were very, very rough, but they were very, very good. So, what what drew you to horror and science fiction? Because I feel like. They they have a large following, but it's kind of also kind of like a cult following at the same time. Like only, it's like a certain, a thing that only like I guess certain people are drawn to, and then they have like really diehard fans. If that makes sense, yeah. Yeah, it does. Um, I, I what I have found is that horror fans in general are the nicest people you're ever going to meet, and you would think that it was wouldn't be that way, and everyone would be like running around and violence and stuff, but it's the exact opposite. They're caring, they're giving, they're they're just having fun. 
And that's what we do. Um, Sci-fi is for the most part, I find it to be the exact same way. Um, for me personally, I mean, I grew up watching reruns of Star Trek when it was first in syndication. Um, I was, I was um, completely enthralled with a show called Space 1999 when that came out in the mid seventies. You know, two years later, Star Wars came out and I was completely hooked, you know? But, um, but yeah, for, as far as horror goes, I mean, I've been watching horror films going back to when they were on Channel 5 and Channel 11 in the New York City area. But my mother would sit me on her lap when I was an infant and she would have me watch first run episodes of Dark Shadows. So I was, you know, I'm a baby watching Dark Shadows every single day. And I did that for probably two years. So, so you know, that definitely has to have a toll. So, so I always like to say, you know, yeah, this is all my mother's fault. So how did you, how did you start, like, like, uh, how did you get into like acting and all the other, like, did you kind of just always want to, did you just want to be in the film industry and you explored different avenues, like, like, uh, being in front of the camera and being behind it or how, how did you, um, I guess, get into the different roles, like acting and also behind the scenes? Um, one of the jobs I had after, um, after, um, my music industry attempt, was um, uh, I was working for a media company and I would edit uh, videotapes, the big you know broadcast umatic tapes, and I got a feel for editing then. So one of the reasons when I was thinking about doing this to this kind of production, I'm like, you know, I think I could probably edit this if I learn modern systems. I already have the the skills for it. I already have the mentality for it. I don't know the different programming because there was no computer editing when I was doing this. So, um, but I just wanted to try and create this thing, and it was. And uh, we just got as many people together as possible to do it. Um, I knew that I had to do everything. I had to understand everything because I never went to film school. I never worked on a set before. I never did anything like that. Um, so I had to learn everything. So I wanted to see what I was like in front of the camera. I wanted to see if I could direct. I wanted to see if I could edit. Uh, did I know anything about sound recording? Did I know anything about colorization? Did I know anything about this? And the answer to all of those things is no. And it's just something you learn along the way. Um, and, and you just try to improve it as much as possible. But I, it goes back to something I always tell people, you know, if you're going to make an independent film, if you're a director, you should also act. Even if it's just for a scene or two. And if you're an actor who's never directed, try directing a scene. Because that mutual understanding, that mutual respect, you know, I think directors of photography should act. I think that, um, I think that actors should pick up a camera and try to create and try to frame a scene like a DP would. I think well, everyone should do everyone else's job because you might not be good at that job or ever want to do it again, but at least then you'll understand where that other person's coming from. And that just creates a, a heightened level of respect no matter where you go. You know, if you're having a hard time with the director, you could see this. Oh, you know, what? I remember I had the same problem. You're a little bit more forgiving because you understand it then. So I think everyone should do everything. And that's the advice I always give people if it's in a class or people just, you know, like this in an interview or you know, at a convention, anyone that asked me, I tell them the same thing, do everything, figure out what you like the most, and then focus on that. So do you, have you noticed a difference with directors who've never acted and directors who have? Um, yeah, I have. Um, uh, and, and you can instantly tell um, who is who has had more experience in front of the camera to, you know, to, to ease everybody into it and to understand what people need. Um, one of my one of my favorite shows um, in the in the '90s was Thirty Something, and it was this you know yuppie crazy yuppie show 
that I never thought I'd be into, but I loved it because the characters were so well-written and, so, and, and the, the actors were just so good at it. And since then, I've had the pleasure of being directed by, by all the male leads from that show on various different shows. And those guys will actually take the time to explain a scene, even if it's just to background people, even if it's just to a featured person, even if it's not the lead, they'll take the time because they remember when they were there. You know, and, and they'll take the extra moment for that. They don't have to, but they will. And that's a beautiful thing, you know. Um, my, one, my, my favorite director right now on the indie scene um, is Jeremiah Kipp. And, you know, you guys, you've probably seen a bunch of his films. And, um, and he, was, he grew up as an actor, so he understands it. And the ease at which he can work on a huge set or a small set, it doesn't matter. It's the same thing. Everyone feels calm. Everyone feels confident. And he feels like he makes you feel that he really wants you to be there. And I don't know if if he would have, I think he'd still have that. But I don't know if it would be as developed if he wasn't a child actor, remembering all the things that he needed as an actor growing up and then applying that to his craft now. So do you kind of view it as a team effort working with the actor is, or do you have kind of an idea of what you want the character you write to be like? Or do you want to see what the actor does with it? Um, I, I, of, I often say, um, it's, a, it's a great question. Um, I often say that actors aren't robots. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, they're not robots. You don't hire them for that. You don't ask them to be in your films for that. You want to see what they bring to the table. And even the best script is never going to go anywhere if someone can't live that part, if someone can't be that person. And what that actually means is their interpretation of that character. Now, it doesn't mean they can change the character's motif and they can change the entire story, but little tiny things about it, they'll bring that to life. And one of my favorite parts of it is when I see, when I, when I write something and I really am happy with how it's turned out, when I see what my regular cast and crew will do with this, when I see what my people will do with this, it's just the best thing. It's just the best thing because they bring themselves into it. And also if you have to, you know, they may change some things that you don't, hadn't thought of. You know, tr I always say, trust your actors, trust their instincts and what they're gonna bring to this. And as long as you do that, you'll never fail. You'll never fail, but it's, it's always a collaboration. If it's not, then, then I, I, don't, I don't know what you do. I mean, I'm sure there are directors there. I mean, I've, I've been on sets that I've seen it where it's just do it this way, read it off the page, next scene. And, and, I, and I think always, Hitchcock was a bit that way. I think he had a very like rigid right. way. He, well, he had everything storyboarded. He wanted everything like an exact right. way. I know, yeah. Right. But he, but he, he's, an, he's an example of that. But, but the people who have worked with him, like I've heard interviews with Bruce Dern, who tell a whole other side of him, like a, you know, kind of a friendly person, kind of a, you know, a better person yeah. than you actually hear about. But, but, you know, Hitchcock was brilliant. So he could just say, I want this and I want that. And people will be lining up to be in his films, you know? Um, not so much of a collaboration at that level, but I mean, I think he, I think he directed over hundred films. So it's, you know, by, after that point, you know, you can pretty much say, I, I'm pretty sure I know what to, I know what I want in this, you know? But I, I like to collaborate because my people will see things I won't and I can't believe I'm the end all be all of, of anything creative on my set. So I always go with it, unless it changes the character or unless I really hate it, which almost never happens, um, I'll just go with it. I'll just absolutely go with it. Yeah, and, and even for me recently, I sent a script I was working on to a friend and the script, it takes place in a realm kind of similar to ours, but like our outside any time or place. So 
I, I he he made the suggestion that I use a different curse word, like make up a curse word to make it seem more like it's in another world. And I actually thought that was pretty cool. So I came up with shod instead of like shit, like get like instead of get the fuck out of here, it's get the shot out of here. Nice. Like shots, like their version of hell. That's what I right. had. So, yeah. No, that's that. That's wonderful. And also, it, it gets around um, uh, centers that way. It gets it gets better ratings at that. It's more a little more friendly, family friendly. If you really <laughs> want that, but um, but yeah, I mean, it also it also puts you in the right place. I mean, what you what you were doing is right. I mean, it's it puts you in a different mindset and, and to just a little tiny thing of oh, this really isn't here. So now, since it's not here. I can expect more and I'm going to be open to more because I don't know what's going to happen next. What's normal in this world. So as soon as you start hearing things like that, you know, there was a, there was a um, classic episode of the twilight zone, which always, always influenced me. Um, it's the, it's the episode where um, the, the world's about to end in a nuclear war and these bunch of scientists, they can escape on this saucer they made. And there's little tiny hints throughout this episode that, that you think they're on earth, but it might not be. And it's little tiny things like that, that that I, I love. I love that kind of thing. So I try to plant little things like that into my films as, to, as well, just to give you the idea that this isn't actually here, or this might not be here. So go with that and suspend disbelief for a little while, and you know, go on the ride. So would you say writing's the thing you love the most? Like, is that your your main thing? Or are you are you like? Uh, I, I like a lot of different things, but I think I think I think in the last couple of years, writing is definitely my favorite thing. Because then, I mean, I can I can see the entire process, and sometimes the stories just come. You know, editing always doesn't doesn't always come to me. I mean, I have a couple of projects I'm working on right now, and I'm finding that I'm I'm struggling. I'm struggling. I'm finding it a little bit hard to complete them, um, just because I can't put myself into the mindset of it. And that comes and goes, you know. But writing, it just it, it'll just arrive, and then I got to get it down, or or I have an idea and I have to start developing it. When you see it come to fruition and people read it. And then you start seeing how you're going to film this thing. That's, that's to me, that's the best. You know, I can, I can be happy being a writer for the rest of my life. Yeah. I think, I think you said that in the class too, that that's the thing you love the most is when seeing the words you write come to life, like in the, and what the actor does with it. Yeah. 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 I mean, a, a perfect example of that um, is uh, identity check. We had, um, we had different reads for the script just to get the characters in place because we were going to film it live they were going to perform the entire film and then we we're going to give them a break, reset the camera, relight it. And then they were going to perform the entire film again. So what we did was we recorded eight live performances and then edited them together as one big conversation. And I can only do that with actors who knew what the hell they were doing because they hit the mark every single time. You know, um, uh, one of my leads, um, 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 Mark Abbott, you know, if he, if he put his hand like this at one word, he put his hand like this at that word, you know, 10 times that day. So it was always perfectly seamless and everybody just knew it, how they held themselves with their expressions. My four leads were just so good. But um, in the second read, um, my, um, my, my, my creative partner was also one of the stars of it, uh, Lauren Clover. And she said, you know, I want to do this. I want to do this in a British accent. And I'm like, I didn't write this person to be from England. You know, she's like, well, I'm just going to try it. And I'm like, but can you, can, can you, keep it, you know, she's incredibly talented. And I said, can you keep it going? She goes, oh, I can do it. And I said, okay. And then she just read the whole thing with a British accent. And I'm like, okay, this is what we needed. I didn't see it. No one else saw it. She felt it. We went with it. I trusted her instincts. Um, and I've, whenever I trust her instincts, I never fail. So it's, we, we just changed the character. And all of a sudden, 
you know, her character was from England. <laughs> and we just went with that. And it just added another layer. Like it just, it was just a really, really inventive idea. And it just worked. It really, really worked, especially at the end of the film. I mean, there's a, you know, she, she, uh, she has a really great part. And at, towards the end, it really, really, she really sings. And it, um, and it, that, that accent just added to it so much. And there's kind of a similarity to that with music. Like it, when you're playing with a band, like, I, like I, I start out playing in bands and stuff too. Like, uh, like you, you, you write a riff and then it sounds like one way on your own, but then it really comes to life. Like when you're jamming with other people and like they add their own like thing to it, or they change the rhythm up or, and it, and it takes on a whole new life. Like yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's that's exactly the kind of thing that we're talking about. Um, um, it's it's almost as fluid with with acting, you know. Um, with acting, a little bit different. Like if you're jamming with someone, you can do the same chord progression over and over and over for three hours, and they'll find other things to put in there. You know, with acting, it's, you're not necessarily saying the same line over and over for three hours, but you do fall into a rhythm with that. I mean, as an actor yourself, I mean, you've you've experienced that. You know, as a musician yourself, you've experienced that. Um, it's a very similar process. I find it very similar, you know, and just, and just, but you also, if you were in that band and you didn't trust the instincts of the people you were playing with, you might not be as free to explore, you know, when you'll often hear um, uh, actors talk about other actors and they'll say they're very giving. And it's a very good way to put it because if you're, I, I've read across the table from someone and I've, I've felt the emotion that they're talking about, you know. I've also been in situations where I'm doing my lines and the reversal, someone's on their phone. And I'm talking to a blank wall, pretending to know what they were saying. So, I mean, it's, you know, a very giving actors. I, I, love, I love when people are present for the whole thing. And that's, and that's part of the whole creative process. With that. So, if, like, what, if one actor does a good job, then it's easier for the others to kind of do their job as well. I, absolutely, absolutely. And, if, and if, one, if one actor is struggling... Um, then there are ways to help that person, even if it's just to the end of a scene, you know, or how about, how, you know, maybe if I do, instead of just, hold, you know, walling yourself off, like some people do, walling yourself off and saying, well, you know, I'm prepared and they're not, you know, it's just kind of like, okay, maybe, what if I lead you into it a little bit sooner and then we can, you know, and then you'll see how things flow and then just let your people do it. You know, then if you're directing the scene and you see the actors working together and they're enjoying each other and they're helping each other, the worst possible thing you could ever do is say a single damn word. Let them do their thing. Let them work it out. Let them and watch what they're doing. But let them work it out. And um, and you'll always get a better performance. You'll always get a better film. You'll always get a, if you're doing a play. You'll always get a better production if people are there presently with each other and helping each other and also just you know into it. And that's you know it seems it seems kind of obvious, but it's not always the case. So that's I love that. I love watching that. Yeah, and do you, and do you think that's why a lot of directors like to use the same actors for different projects because they get used to working with certain people and then they have that rapport. It's easier to to get what they want to get out of them or to make something oh, yeah. better. Oh yeah, yeah. I I have, I have a, uh, a group of people who I've worked with several times. Uh, Lauren Clover, my my partner's one. Um, Heather Drew, I love working with her. Kelly Legault, I love working with her. Matt Kaplan, I love working with him. Um, I've worked with him on several projects, his projects and my projects. Um, there's a number of different people who I really just always enjoy working with. You know, I mentioned Mark Abbott before, another perfect example. I've worked with him on five different projects now. Um, and, and when we go back to shooting, the first thing up, when we can all shoot safely again, and I, I, and I feel confident we can, the first thing up that we're shooting 
is is going to be Lauren Clover, um, Heather Drew, and Mark Abbott. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so you know, with Mark Abbott uh, as a time traveler coming back and trying to explain who he is, and everyone's kind of not really that interested. So then the rest of the story goes from there. Um, but we already agreed that this is going to be the setup, and as soon as we can do it, we're going to start filming that one thing. It's it's all ready to go. It's just you know, it's just the quarantine. You know, so it's pandemic and yeah. So does uh, when you write, does your ideas come from your own personal experience and or but fictionalized, or is it just purely your imagination? Or I, I think it's it's a little bit of both. Um, it's I will call, I will um, bring ideas back up from my childhood. I'll bring ideas back from when I was younger. I'll bring up things that I thought about years ago. Maybe I changed my mind about. But sometimes it just um, it just comes. Um, we've been talking about identity check and. Um, and my lead, Lauren, I was going, I was driving to um, perform her wedding um, because I'm a reverend. I was going to be doing her wedding for her. And on the way, um, my wife said, you know, I had this dream where I went to my doctor and it was some other guy there. And she said, you know, you're not Dr. Jackson. He said, oh, yes, I, I am. I'm, I bought his practice and I also bought his name. So coming to me is it's the same thing as, you know, coming to him. And she's like, no, it most certainly is not. So I said, could you imagine that? Like if you bought someone's business and you bought their name as well, like you can be them. And then the idea clicked and I went, oh man. So we, so we couldn't do anything about it then. I kind of get it out of my mind because I had to do Lauren's wedding. And we, I went there and, and before the wedding even started, the idea, the whole script popped into my head. And I went back to my wife. I said, listen, you... I got the script. I got the idea. I got the story. I can't talk about it now because we got to do this ceremony and I don't want to screw that up because, you know, she gets this one, you know? So, and I said, so let's just get this out. And then I could, and then, but then I went home that night and um, for the next 10 days, I did three revisions. And that's the story that became identity check of multi multi billionaires crashing and falling. And then their arrivals coming to buy them and their entire personality and their, and their identity as a human being instead of declaring bankruptcy. Hmm. So, <laughs> so, like you, so like you never you never know where it's going to come from, I guess. Just I really like, don't. Yeah. I really don't. Yeah, it can come from anything, an idea that someone someone can mention something. I'll either say, well, you know, we should, maybe, maybe we should work on that together. Or I'll say, you know, do you mind if I run with that? I really like that idea. You know, or even just something I, I overheard, you know, eight years ago, someone say in a bar, and it'll just come back to me. I'll say, you know, that was that was a pretty funny thing that guy said that time when I wonder who that guy was like a stranger to me you know but I wonder, I wonder what, what that guy's doing right now and all of a sudden an idea will be like you know this guy only went to bars and told this still the same joke and it's kind of like you know you united all these people you know it's like you know that kind of thing and that just that just popped into my head right now so it's like you know we can do that kind of thing so it's, it, it comes from everywhere you never limit yourself always take in every single thing that you have all your memories all your experiences work from that um in your scripts include things that you know when they say write what you know it really does matter um and uh you know and and then just incorporate as much real realty uh, reality into your writing as you possibly can and and uh yeah just go with any idea even if it sucks write it write every day if you're gonna be a writer write every day yeah you have to be like a good listener and a good observer well i feel like a lot of things that apply to acting also apply to writing too because like as an actor you have to observe people and take them in too and as a writer the same way and as a writer you have to get into the character the head of the character yeah too, the- sure i mean yeah as an as an actor i mean you know if you have a really emotional scene that doesn't come out of the, out of nowhere 
You know, if you have to be upset or you have to cry or you have to be, you know, angry, I, I don't know anyone that can just fake that or just, you know, just put that face on. You know, it's, it's not as easy as comedy comes to some people. I mean, like, comedy is the hardest thing to do, but like everyone can laugh very easily. You yeah. know, it's like bringing out the other emotions, the darker emotions, the most sad emotions. You know, there has to be something in your life that you go back to. You well that up, you bring that up and you put yourself in the mindset for it. You know, I know that's how I've done it, you know, but it's um, and that's how most actors I know do it. But you have to with, without those experiences, you're not going to be able to really emote to the character. You're not going to really be able to to uh, to translate that to an audience, you know? Yeah. And can, you, can it sometimes just purely come from imagination too, like imagining what it's like to be in that person's shoes? Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. If you if if, if you're talented enough, you're, you know, if you're skilled enough to um, and creative enough to dream up something that you never experienced and empathize with someone in that situation, that's a beautiful thing. You know, that's a beautiful thing in life. You know, it's just, you know, to empathize with somebody you don't even know, who you never experienced their thing. It's like, okay, but this person's hurting. And that's, that's, you know, that's what things are about. But if you could pull that up out of nowhere, I mean, that's, you know, that's a, that's, that, that's a, that's a skill I do not have, but, uh, but yeah, if people can do that, brilliant. And is it hard sometimes to get in the head of the character if it's like non non realistic things happening in the script? Um, I I think that most things are, are relatable. Um, I've never been in outer space, but I've written a lot about things that go on there. Um, I can, I, but I think that when people, you know, eventually we may be on other worlds. You know, a lot of the same feelings that we have now and the fears and the instincts we're going to be carrying there. So you know, if you have a, a, a uh, a script on a moon base, you know. Um, I have I have one that takes place on a met on a medical uh, military base on a moon, a distant moon, God knows where, and the people have the same conflicts. They have the same kinds of things. So the settings are can be completely fantastical, but if you're not writing where people can relate to these things, even if it's completely you know out there. I mean, a perfect example is Blade Runner. I mean, we don't have sentient robots running around, but you know, by the end of that film, if you don't feel bad for them, if you can't understand why they want to keep living, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, we don't have anything like that, but we know people who are losing their, their lives or, or, yeah. or watching them die, or we've experienced this. So that kind of thing, it's the, it's the exact same thing. Yeah. Well, well, I guess it can also be like in an allegorical way, we can really like how sometimes like the, you know, they can dehumanize people that can be considered enemies of the state or something like that and it was the same with the you know the androids they killed they were the sort of dehumanizing them yeah 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 that, that, that's that's that, that kind of thing i mean any any totalitarian state um any fascist state any, anything like that you will find that it only works if you can pick the people that you want bring them to your side your side and then say over there is the enemy and they must be destroyed and then you rally the people to destroy the enemy, even when they're not the enemy. So that's, I mean, that's countless times throughout history. It's not just modern times. It's, it's everywhere. It's, it's, it's recorded history shows this everywhere. You know, it's something that we do, which is something, you know, it's a whole other topic, but, um, but, but yeah, but yeah, that's. Yeah. And, and yeah. sometimes sci-fi or, or I guess even sometimes fantasy, depending on what it is, can help us kind of look at our world from an outside perspective in certain issues that happen in our world, if you put it in another world, then it, it, you can have a perspective on it you wouldn't otherwise have because you're looking at it from an outside view. 
Oh yeah, the um, the the my favorite example of that is um the original um, um the third season of Star Trek. There was an episode um where Frank Orshin is running around chasing a guy and and they and they are literally one side is completely white and one side is completely black on their fa- on their bodies, and you think that they're the same guys. They're trying to kill each other. And and like, why are they doing this? And they say well, you're the same species. And one gets very insulted and said, "No, I'm not. No, I, I'm 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 white on the right side. His people are right on the left side." <laughs> and that's when you realize, like, oh, they really are different. They're mirrors of each other. But it was just that kind of thing. And you know, the, in in 1969, I mean, that's exactly what you know. One of the biggest, most important things in the world, sadly, still going on today. You know, um, are uh, equal rights and the and the absurdity of of you know segregation and bigotry against race so they showed that in a very beautiful way they got past the censors because the censors are always like don't talk about vietnam don't talk about race don't talk about these things so they said no these are aliens and that's and they got the message in there that's why it's brilliant i mean star trek touched upon vietnam touched upon racism touched upon all kinds of things you know, and the, and the and the, the studio executives and Desi Lu had no idea what was going on. NBC had no idea what they were doing until it was, until it aired, and they said, "Ah, oh, damn." <laughs> you know. So, that, so do you ever? Thing, I love that. So do you ever try to write like what you think could happen in the future, or things you, see, the ways you see the world going? Uh yeah. I mean, one of the uh, um, I've touched upon this before. Before, um, one of the the films I did was Impervia, and um. And uh, Impervia is about this very poor, fam- uh, a biracial family um, with two daughters um, that live in this tiny little house in the middle of nowhere. And I mean, literally nowhere. We digitally, digitally erased the entire planet, except for their house. And about 100 miles away is this beautiful, beautiful city where the rich live. And one day, a police officer shows up at the house and says, listen, I know you got nothing. This is, this is your house. You got no money or anything. But, you, but you know, I'm sorry. We made a new rule. You got to go. And they said, well, you know, where, where do we have to go? And they said, well, you know, it doesn't matter to us. It's just, we don't want you here. <laughs> you know? So it's four people living a hundred miles away and that still bothered them. So I wanted to get, and then, and then the, the film shows into, into the why. But um, one of my influences that was, um, was, was forced migrations. Um, I was, when I was in college, um, uh, I was studying um, cultural anthropology and and one of my one of my final papers was on forced migrations throughout history, and I can remember growing up in Forest Queens when I was a little kid. Um, my dad would bring me around to all the different shops, and a lot of the shop owners had numbers tattooed on their arms from the survivors from Auschwitz and places like that. And I didn't understand at the time when I was a little kid why they would have that. I always remember looking at them though, um, and then I got a little older when I realized what that meant and the gravity of that. I mean, I don't think the gravity that's ever gone away from me when that hit me in the head, like what this meant. As the older I get, the worse it gets in my mind. And I always think, you know, that's the that's mentality. You grab power, bring who you want to your side and then say over there is the enemy. And it doesn't it doesn't make it rational. It doesn't make it, it doesn't make sense. But it makes sense if you want to gain power and eliminate someone or something and rally the people together. And, and uh, so this is what happened in my film Impervia. You know, they, there was a distinction between the haves and the have-nots. And, and we find out exactly who these people are and, and why they're ostracized and why they're so hated and hunted down. And, and when they're just trying to live, 
And that's the whole basis of that. So yeah, I mean, things like that, that I, that I, I think about all the time, really, um, because the world hasn't really changed all that much. And, um, and that could absolutely happen again. That could easily happen again. Um, and anyone foolish enough to think that it would never go on is pretty much guaranteeing that it would. So, yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, we already have that, like you were saying earlier, you know, the demonization of the, the other happens all the time. People are quick to, de it's easy for people to dehumanize people that they think aren't like them or something like that. Yeah. Right. And it could be, it could be anything. It could be, you know, I, I always said if we were all the same sex and the same height and the same color and everything, we'd be fighting about, you know, people who had like earlobes detached or earlobes attached and we'd yeah. be killing each other over that. <laughs> you yeah. know, so it's like, yeah. it's like whatever kind of slight difference, you know, it's yeah. like that. I don't, I don't, I don't know the answer to it. I think we have to get yeah. past that. Well, it, it used to even happen more with different, you know, white scoops like that, the Irish and the Italians and stuff like that, you know? <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. My, my, yeah. My, my, my father, my father's first generation uh, Irish over here. He, you know, he grew, he grew up in Upper Manhattan. There was, there was you know, these four blocks were the Irish guys and those four blocks over there were the Italian guys and you, you didn't cross over. I mean, you couldn't even imagine that in Manhattan right now, but it's exactly it. You don't cross over and you just knew. And there's no reason, you know? And then of course, all those people got married because all my friends are Irish and Italian. So they all did eventually <laughs> got together, you know? So it's, it's uh, yeah, it's everyone, all the groups in New York that don't like each other, all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, then the babies are all born. And it's like, oh, okay, we're, we're fine now. It's like, all right. You know, yeah, well, so. when I think a lot of sci-fi likes to show it that, like, in the future, it's humans are united, but then it's humans against other alien species or androids or turning to non-human things to right. press. You know, or, or, or different factions. I mean, watch The Expanse. I mean, there's three groups of humans that are, that are always at odds, you know, and there's, and there's, you know, espionage and murder and threats of war and attacks and they're all in the same solar system they're all the same people but they have already separated themselves out you know depending on what planet they live on so it's yeah. <laughs> you know yeah it's it's uh it, it, it is interesting how how, how much sci-fi goes into that direction you know it's like now that we're united oh now we still have to fight because you you can do a lot with that you can make a war movie out of that you can make a classic western out of that you can make you know a, a grand journey to find my missing person kind of thing you know so it works yeah. it just it, it, after a while it just works <laughs> yeah and so so you've also done all right so you've done writing directing also music scores right because i because I, I think i read that like so you still do music a bit like that's still because i know that's what you started out with and right. i think last yeah. time you mentioned that you even do electronic music now or something like that yeah i do mostly edm i'm actually talking to you guys from from one corner of my new studio i, I redid the entire space um <clears throat> integrating brand new equipment with equipment from the 80s and everything in between so everything i can get my hands on that works i'm integrating it all into one hole that that i can just draw from whenever i get an idea and um i've been working with uh, a brilliant um uh, composer and and, and um, musician uh burned mccallion and i've been working with her forever i've known her since we were both teenagers um but she went into filming i went to uh, doing music for for major television shows so that's what she was doing. So I got her hand-me-downs, you know, things she didn't want to sell. Doing that. So that's how we started out. But then she started doing beautiful scores for my films. And I just saw the things she did. And I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm never going to be as good as her. And I know that. And I'm fine with that because she's brilliant. But 
um, I, I want to try to do my own thing too and just try to see, get back into that. Um, in 1995, I did the score for a off, significantly off-Broadway play uh, called The Shadow Trilogy, which is like a Twilight Zone kind of thing. And, um, and I knew, the, I knew the, the playwright. And he said, listen, can you come up with some music? And it was pretty much the last thing I'd, I'd recorded for a long time. But I did all the music and all the sound effects for, for the entire play. And this is at the time when we didn't have computers doing it. We didn't have, you know, I had cassette tapes of all the different things I had recorded. And then we would swap the tapes out in the, in the sound booth at the theater. You know, so that was cool, but it gave me it, it gave me the bug for that. Like sometimes I'll see a film, and I'll really get into the score. But sometimes I'll see something and I'll say, you know what? This is a this is this isn't the music it needed. The scene needed. It would have been better if it was done like this or like that, or it needed something else. And the more I started realizing that, I'm like, you know, I really want to start doing this on my own. I really want to at least attempt it. So um, I do a lot of a lot of uh, EDM stuff. I do a lot of um, like 80s style synthwave and you know the darker things like that. Um, you know, craft um, and Depeche Mode and all those things. I mean, like you know, earlier erasure. I, I love all of that so much, and I'm starting to do more music like that now. So slowly but surely, it's coming together. I mean, the studio's up and running, which is you know, I'm thrilled. You know, I mean, in the background you'll see is the 1988 Mac. And there's, you know, and, and then over there is a computer I built two months ago. So it's like, you know, it's, it's right on either side of me. It's like, and I got the best of all these worlds. Um, but that's the kind of thing I want to do, incorporate all that kind of stuff, you know, and, and bring, and bring my own sound to my own creations because I'm editing my own work. I'm sometimes acting in my own work. I'm directing my own work. And so I want to, and I'm also sometimes doing sound, you know, I mean, on identity check, I, I was, I was the clapboard guy, you know, so, <laughs> You know, and then I was, and then I call action and I have to do the platforms. So, um, but but yeah, I and mean, that's 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 what I'm doing. I, I want to get everything kind of as a whole because ultimately, what I want to do in this space, and ultimately after that, maybe even as early as next year, I want to start doing full scale animation here. So so from that, I have to I have to have a mastery of sound. I have to understand all those techniques much much better than I do right now. So that when I start doing animations and I start doing computer work like that, um, I already have the voice actors. I already know the people. We can do that, but I have to understand how to do it all in studio, all in one. So that's my challenge for the next two years: doing more and more things like that, and definitely break, branching out into into animation. That's why all this all this gear is here and everything else. I oh, like like sci-fi <laughs> animated kind of stuff. You think? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, some some of the scripts that I have that I can't afford to create, um, if I don't have backers for them, um, you know. I mean, I, I don't. I mean, I, I have a script right now that can that can go out the, go out the door and get produced right now, but it would cost four hundred grand. Hmm. So I just don't have that kind of access. I don't have I don't have those kind of connections yet. So um, some of those might be going to animation, and uh, it just depends on how good I can get it, you know. And then also. Also, I mean, if I if I get to a point where I can't do it very well, well, then I'm going to talk to people who can and say, listen, you got to teach me, you know, because if you don't, you can learn something every day. So, you know, that's 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 the plan. That's the the overall plan of why things are going the way they are. So, yeah, well, and it seems like uh, a lot of people in the entertainment industry or the arts, they wear many hats and do don't just do one thing. Like I'm the same way. I, you know, I do this podcast. I act. I, I do voice. Been getting into voice acting as well, and I write. Uh, and I also do music, but that's, I guess right now, that's more of like a hobby kind of thing. I actually been getting into like some synth wave kind of stuff too. And 
cool. stuff like that also yeah and uh but uh so like how how do you find like how do you do you feel like you had to focus on one thing to be your niche and like put other things more on the side or did you just kind of do you, is it easier to just be flexible and kind of work on what you can work on when you can or right um it's 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 hard i mean when i when i first started doing the 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 film work and started working on zombie hunters you know i was also doing i was doing woodworking every weekend i was building furniture i was doing i was working with my hands i was building things you know around the house i was doing a lot of different things like that renovations and such and i love that kind of thing and I had to choose after a while. I didn't have time for both. I couldn't be filming on the weekends and building a new table on the weekends. You know, I only had one weekend. So, so you know, the filmmaking, I really had to go in all, all in for it because I had so much to learn. It wasn't something that I could do. I only started, I only started making films when I was 37 years old. So it's, you know, I was, it was a while ago. And, um, and, and uh, yes, yeah, so, I mean, like, it wasn't like, you know, I was 19 and I had time to, you know, I, I had things to catch up on, you know, so um, I, I had to, I had to sacrifice a lot of that. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, if, if writing comes, then you go with it. Always go with what, what, what feels right at the moment. You know, if you can do some writing for a couple of days and you're not getting an idea for a new thing, go back to your old scripts and revise that, you know, that kind of stuff it's uh you have to find time for all of it but if you want if you want to learn all of it you got to spend a lot of time learning all of it. yeah yeah and then, and then they can kind of overlap like we were saying earlier before with like acting and writing and stuff like that sure yeah. sure absolutely absolutely you know and and also just watch everyone when you're on a set watch what everyone does i tell people this all the time especially if you're doing background work you're sitting in a holding for five hours <clears throat> don't read a book don't put your headphones on go around the set Watch what everyone does. Learn everything, and you'll be amazed. I've I've stolen uh, techniques from maybe thirty different television shows right now. Even if it's just like you know how to hang a light, or how to build a set, or you know at what time you take breaks, and you know who needs to hear what. You just learn these things. So you know, learn constantly, learn everything, and then just and then the only thing it can do is make you better, no matter yeah, where that- it comes from. Yeah, and I, and I think you said you worked. I, I think we well, we probably worked on some of the same. I think you worked on uh, Mr. Robot. That was, oh, uh, and then you said, yeah, and then you, you I think you you said uh, uh, the last time I talked, to you, you said that Mr. Robot is like you, you you thought that was like one of the better written shows. And a lot of, you think a lot of the writing, good writing's gone to TV. And I know you mentioned Mr. Robot. But, oh uh, yeah, oh yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of good writing in both places, but but television, I don't think TV has ever been better written than it is right now. You know, and I, and I mean, I don't mean like you know, this month, I mean, like the last five, five to 10 years in that time period. Um, some of the dramas that are being created now are amazing. Some of the writing, you know, the first couple of seasons of Game of Thrones, absolute brilliance. Um, the, uh, you know, things, things like that. And, and a lot of shows that, that are coming up are very, very well written and very, very well acted. And they're seasoned crews. You know, uh, Mr. Robot, that was a that was a wonderful thing because it's so well written and the story is so cool. But the camera techniques to get that sense of paranoia, um, they would do one scene where the camera would be the lens would be here over the main actress's face to give, you know, while she's doing a scene. And then the next scene will do the exact same thing, but no one will even know where the camera is. Because it's like 
it's like a hyper focus on her and then and then pulling away to see how small she looks in a scene you know and but like there and then there was that one they, episode that was like a whole long shot i think it was like it was when the, when the people were rioting in the office building and there was like this the, the camera just like followed the character straight to have like a whole episode yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's i've never seen camera uh, camera techniques like that and they had specialized rigs for all of this but but it moved us as as smoothly as any other like a courtroom drama i've done a lot of law and order and and uh and uh good wife and good and the, the good life and all, all those kinds of shows and um and the um the cameras on, on, the, on the court tv shows they're very very smooth and more subtle you know but they all work in unison three cameras at once all work in unison and the crews all work in unison and that's it's six people for for cameras that's 18 people all converging on each other and it's like a ballet and it's beautiful so no matter how extreme it is or how many or how direct it is you know that's the kind of stuff that that um it just adds so much to it it adds so much to, to production and and the, the grace that they do a, an easier shoot is the same grace I got on a show like Mr. Robot doing these crazy acrobatics with the cameras. You know, it's $150,000 flying around on each one. So, it's, you know, you've got to be also careful at the same time. But but they do some beautiful things. And that's I love watching that. I, I could I could I could watch that every day for the rest of my life. Those kinds of productions. And as far as uh, independent films, because I know that's uh, like uh, what, what you love like the most like to do and everything uh do, do you think there's something lost with the bigger budget productions that isn't uh that's that's lost from like the independent films that people where people kind of do it themselves i i think i think it all matters to the film i think there are there are, there are major big production films that are amazing that have top talent um but in front of and behind the camera um where people f- truly feel the story um i think it's very easy to also make a gigantic blockbuster that's nothing but robots running around and killing each other while you know whoever's the hottest you know chick in Hollywood right now you know <laughs> bounces from robot to robot and falls down you know 800 feet and lives but um but the indie stuff I it becomes more personal you'll see a lot of indie films you know the the, the writers are often the directors um, and then they're also often the stars um, or at least they have a part in it. Um, and, and that's someone like a Spike Lee. He does it to this day. He always puts himself in his movies because he wants to be a part of that, you know? Yeah. But uh, I, I think that maybe there's a little bit more of a direct thing with indie work. Um, general, we're not getting paid to produce our own work. Um, we're not getting, you know, we're, we're paying our people, but nowhere near what they're worth. Um, I, don't th- I don't think I've ever paid anyone what they're actually worth because I think they're worth, I think all my, my guys are worth millions. So I wish I could give that to them, but I can't. Um, but I think there's just a more more direct care for it. Um, you know, you could be hired to direct a major blockbuster. You know, you don't have to care if the if the costumes are all ready. There's an entire team doing that. But if you're on independent, you know, you may have one person doing that. Like I have, I have one Gail Gooch who does all my costuming and things like that. Um, but but you know, I'm lucky to even have her. So in the past, I was doing it all myself. So there's a more direct relationship to it. It's more of a familial kind of feel. And I think sometimes that definitely trumps what major Hollywood pulls out. You know, and also, also you can take risks with any film. There's really no limit. You know, there's things that'll hold you back. Like I know that from making 34 minute short films and every festival is like, we don't know what this film is. 
we, it, we, it's, it's not short and it's not long, so we yeah. can't play you. <laughs> right? So, um, so you run to those things, but, but no one put a limit on me. Like I put a limit on myself or I put an extension on myself, you know? Um, but that's the, the indie thing. You can do that experiment more. You don't always have a series of backers that took out loans from a gigantic bank that saying, I want to see a return on this investment in five months. <laughs> you know, that's a different kind of pressure. You, and I think that that's why the major things go more formulaic, which is why you start seeing reboots and reboots. It's much easier to get millions of dollars for something that's already been proven to work than a new concept. You know, yeah, and, and, it doesn't always and, work and, out, but. Yeah, and, and it's also, I guess, a, when it's a smaller crew, it's you, you connect more with the the crew too, right? Than you would yeah. on a bigger production. Yeah, yeah I mean, there's, there's a familiarity. I mean, um, uh, Mark Boutros has been my my DP for just about everything I've ever done. I started Zombie Hunters with him, and I and he and he also shot Identity Check, and he shot Impervia for me, and an Emirage, and all my work, and um, and Sling Spear, the, our, our duo project. Um, but um, she, he and I have a shorthand. You know, I've known him since the early 90s. We were in college together. And I've also worked with him for 15 years now going on. So we have a shorthand. I can I can say, you know, you know, pull this back and monster lighter like this was or Mr. Robot back to the corner. You know, and he'll know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, that I, I don't know if you always have that with you. You know, you're on a new new set and you hire a whole new crew. You may have a fantastic crew and they're going to give you gold, you know, but that that familiarity at shorthand is definitely not going to be there until crews work with each other you know the most relaxed set i've major set i've ever been on was law and order because the, that crew has been together for 21 years <laughs> you know on, on, <laughs> on a, a svu i mean they're yeah. all just like they're all just looking at each other and like you know like cracking jokes and laughing with each other but they're getting yeah. all their work done at the same time it's clockwork to them they're they're, per, they're timed perfectly you know and that that familiarity does come and that's one of the biggest shows in television so yeah, you can also have that there. Yeah, and then and then you also mentioned like if it becomes just about special effects, then it kind of loses its soul. I was just thinking like the later episodes of Game of Thrones became just about like dragons and like special effects, and and originally it was more about the dialogue and the characters than even the magic or any of that. So. Right, because 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 what happened? The, the the main writer, he didn't finish the books. Yeah. <laughs> and, and people people who were not at his level had to finish them. You know, I'm not saying I could have done a better job, but I'm saying that it, it was night and day. If you're a fan yeah. of the show, you know, night and day when the books ended and the and the and the, the showrunners started writing it. And it was done. It was done. You know, because it didn't, it didn't have the soul, didn't have the spirit, it didn't have the the, the, the daring. You know, Martin's daring killing off his main characters right away. Yeah. You know, and some of the main characters are already dead before the book even starts. It's, I mean, who writes like that? Stephen King doesn't do that. You know, so it's yeah. like, you know, he does. He's he takes yeah. gigantic chances, and and he just didn't give a damn. Yeah, you know? and but even gets like angry letters. Like, yeah, even gets like angry letters from fans. I think, like when he when his first book came out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he. Yeah, you know that. I think that's hilarious. It's it said um, that he that he wrote those books so that they can never be turned to films. He's like, I'm going to make these so big and so outlandish and so so gigantic that no one's ever going to want to bother. So they'll always exist only in people's minds. And then the technology came around to do it. And he was like, oh, damn. 
And then they said, we're going to give you this much money. He was like, oh yeah, I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> you know? but, but his plan with the first couple of books was to make it so that they can never, I mean, the Iron oh, Throne is supposed to be like 80 stories, 80 steps up. And, you know. Yeah. And that's why so I have such crazy off. descriptions of the characters too, I guess. Like they, like uh, Tyrion had like one green eye and one black eye and like all, all the characters yeah. have like crazy des- descriptions too. Yeah, and, and Tyr- Tyrion's nose is off by like the third book, I think. Yeah, like, com- completely <laughs> off. So he's just, you know, he's like a skull. You know? Yeah. So, you yeah. Know? Peter Dinklage wasn't going to go for that. I don't blame him. Yeah. So you think good writing is at the core of every good production? Like, if you don't have the good writing, then there's not much you can. Yeah. Yeah. You can. You can have. You can have the most amazing actors in the world, um, and you just. You just can't. Um, I often tell the story about. Um, there's a film called Starship Invasions. Which is one of my my all time like most one of the films that affected me the most only because it was the film that I first saw and I realized oh my god people make bad films because I was like nine years old I had no idea and it's and I watched it again as an adult and it's terrible it's an absolutely terribly produced terribly written show um, the this the the space stations are discos I mean it's just awful but it stars Christopher Lee and Robert Vaughn I mean these are seasoned actors you know Christopher Lee tried. He tried, but but there's nothing he could have done with it. You know, they didn't give him anything to do with it. But even then, his just his presence is still, oh, it's still Christopher Lee. It's, it's still really cool, you know. But he just it was just a nightmare. And uh, and that's why and that's why I adore that film. I adore that film. It taught me everything that you shouldn't do. <laughs> <laughs> I, everyone should watch the Starship yeah. Invasions. It's it's it's, yeah. it's amazing. It's yeah. absolutely amazing. Yeah, you can you can learn you can learn as much from the bad stuff as from the good stuff. Yeah, <laughs> like with, yeah. yeah. And I could I could tell him. I mean, like you know, these guys tried. I mean, they really did try. But it was a terrible story and a terribly written, and and no one thought it through. But they went and did it, and they yeah. got investors. They went and did it. It's, it's significantly low budget, but they went and did it. So I'll always give them credit for that. I mean, yeah. they had they had a, a worldwide release of a film. That's amazing. <laughs> you know? Yeah anyone can do that so yeah and i was just and i was just thinking i could do what i could learn to do it uh i could look at what tommy wiseau did and learn not to do that but then i was thinking well he actually did okay doing what he did so yeah, I, <laughs> like he got like a cult yeah yeah i mean i mean and he he also raised over three million dollars for that film so it's yeah. like he 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 had whatever that skill was for him to say, oh no, this is the script and I need $3 million and to get that much money. Yeah, that's, I mean, I got to yeah. respect that, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, I like he had motivation. He director, but he had, oh, he had motivation out of the ass. I mean, he was, yeah. you, know, you know, I think he was selling leather jackets and watches and such, but like he was getting them like wholesale from like Yugoslavia, like some crazy thing. And he had all these connections to like do this. So he was selling all this stuff while they were filming that movie. Because yeah. that was like, you know, that was, that was his income. <laughs> <laughs> like you know, that's a, that's a driven guy, man. And apparently, he doesn't drink or do drugs or anything. He's just he's just out there. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know more power to him. I hey, I can't I can't, I can't say I can't tell him. You know, he didn't do it. He damn sure did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, so I guess before we wrap up, uh, you, you did mention the Reverend thing. I did want to get in a little bit of that, like. And then we can just wrap up that. So, uh, uh, yeah. So, so you're a pagan reverend, is what you yeah, said? Yeah, um, I'm. I'm a Wiccan priest. I'm registered um, as such uh, with nationwide and also within New York City. 
I actually had to go to city hall and they bring out the big, big book and you open it up and you sign your name and it like goes back to like 1850 and you know, so I'm like, all right. And, um, that was kind of cool. The book was almost too big for the woman to drag out. And, um, and, uh, yes, I've, I've been doing weddings, um, things like that. Um, I, I've done this for a long time. The first one I did was for, um, for the, uh, the husband wife team from mass graves, mass grave pictures. Um, um, uh, Manny Serrano and Lindsay Serrano, who are who are directors in their own right, and you've probably seen their horror films. And um, and uh, Lin- Lindsay does these, these these horror comedies that, I mean, they're just fantastic. You know, so uh, we met them doing you know uh, at a convention, and they came to help us with Zombie Hunters. A year later, I'm doing their wedding, so I I kind of set, set it up to do that to help them with their wedding, and then I just got into it. You know, and uh, I only stopped for a couple of years, a little bit of a crisis of faith, um, little kind of, you know, is this something I want to be promoting still? And, you know, do I really believe in this? And, you know, but I, I've, I've, I've come back around and I realized that, that this is something that, you know, I, I get to do with people. And, and I promised a couple of people years ago I would do their weddings and both of them are getting married this year. So I have to, I have to hold true to my word. And I said, I do it. So I got to do it. (laughs) And and it's not just uh, pagans, pagan weddings you do. You also do interfaith weddings or other religions. Um, I can, I I do, uh, I do interfaith. um, I do a non-denominational. I often tell people if they really want, like, you know, if they're, if they're Catholic or they're very Christian, they should probably have a Christian minister doing that because, because I think that someone who believes in their faith and believes in their God, it just adds to it. I think that that would be there's more of a connection um, to their higher being. I can certainly do that, but it would it would just be words. It wouldn't be heartfelt. Um, most of the time when I do this, though, it's 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 usually non-religious. Um, I let the I let the the people who are getting married. Um, I was supposed to say I was supposed to say husband and wife, but it's not always husband and wife. So um, so I let them you know do their own vows and they you know, they say say what they want. I give people complete freedom. To do whatever they want in their ceremonies and like this is not about me it's about you and and uh we've had some really really beautiful things um manny and Lindsay's um ceremony you know they had they, they did a hand fasting and every member of their family came and tied a different colored knot with a different intention around their hands and then we took and i took it at the bottom i tied them all together and we did it loose enough so they could pull their hands out of it later and that's still hanging on their wall you know that knot from that day from almost 11 years ago you know, so that I mean, there's, there's beautiful things you can do that aren't necessarily structured after religion and things like that. So, um, but yeah, you know, and now and now that there's no restrictions on who can who can marry who, you know, that's you know, which is 50 years overdue. But that's uh, you know, that's a whole other thing too. You know, it's beautiful to be a part of that as well. You know, and how how did you uh, get into paganism? Like, how did your beliefs and spirituality develop? Um, I had I had a close friend in college named Anna Fernandez, and um, she was we were walking around the campus, um, and she said, "Oh, well, this is where I took history class, and this is where I had I had drama class, and this is where I dedicated myself to the goddess." And I said, "What the hell are you talking about?" <laughs> so I this is back in '93, and I and I I, I kind of dismissed it. I was just like, "I'm not going to be insulting, but this is nonsense." I was an atheist. I was like strict atheist. This is nonsense. But over the years, it kind of came to me and I started seeing things around me. And I'm like, I think that I think that I'm being drawn towards this. I think that I'm really what she said. I think it's true. And and, you know, Wicca is a nature based religion. You can see it 
every aspect of, of the weather, of fertility, of, of, of planting cycles, of everything, from people to rocks to birds, to the sky to the planets, to the universe, it all makes sense in a certain way. And, and, that, and that religion celebrates that. And it's perfectly equal for every human being. There's no, there's no hierarchy, there's no popes, there's no no one. Um, anyone can be a priest, anyone can be a priestess. Um, and, and everyone's just, it's just mutual respect. But I, but then um, through the, the beautiful world of Facebook, I got, I've got back in touch with Anna and I said, guess what? <laughs> I told her, I said, thank you for opening that door. And she's like, listen, you, I opened the door, but you were the one that decided to walk through it. And that was a beautiful thing that she said to me. And I've never forgotten that. And I'm just like, thank you. So, we're, so we still talk to this day. I mean, I, you know, I still have a good laugh about it, but um, yeah, I've been, uh, I've been a member of that faith uh, going on 24 years now. In May, it'll be 24 years. Hmm. Yeah, so, so, so were you raised like, because uh, you mentioned popes, I just made me think maybe you were raised Catholic, I'm guessing, and did you break? Oh, the... yeah, I, I was I was raised Irish Catholic through my father and Roman Catholic through my mother. So I had the best of both worlds. And all of the all of the things that, that come with that both good and very bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also went to uh, 12 years of Catholic school. And then when I was um, after my music career, and after I worked with uh, the media group for almost 11 years, um, uh, I, I started doing accounting and I became an accountant for the Archdiocese of New York. I counted money at one of the high schools for seven years. And that was trippy. And if, and if, and if nothing else convinced me before that I was right about my choice of religion, that absolutely convinced me <laughs> that I was right <laughs> in where I was heading. You know, a religion that has no money and doesn't ask for money. I'm like, yeah, that's just, yeah, God doesn't need money. <laughs> you know yeah so that was just my take on it i'm sure other people have different experiences but you know li- yeah, lifelong but- experience with, with with the more of the negative aspects of that yeah but that, but that's interesting that religion always becomes about money because if you look at like most of the re- religions like even uh hinduism I, I was revisiting the uh upanishads recently and there's the story of najikitas who who was uh his father gave up all his possessions uh because he came from like a rich family and then he learned about not being like not being caught in the material wealth or like the material pleasures and having like the deeper spiritual wealth with that and it was the same with the buddha you know like he he, uh he 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 gave up all his possessions and went and then you know jesus christ says give up your possessions and uh you know blessed are the poor and it's it's harder for a rich man to uh go into heaven Instead, the, that one line he says, yeah. So, like, that's why it's always interesting that it's like it's monetized in that way, kind of, because I, I feel like a lot of spirituality speaks against like the material. Absolutely. The um, that 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 that's a that's a that's a big um spiritual journey. You'll find that in almost all cultures. You know, once once you realize that that there is more to this world than just having and having more and having more and having more. That's a that's a really big deal. Um, and even in, in the case of Jesus, I mean, I think that most of that's fictionalized, but I don't know if it's true or not. But in the story, you know, he was a carpenter, and at the time, that meant he was a mason, so he had a really good union job. I mean, he was like, you know, it was like being like a, a level A guy with local three, you know. So I mean, like he was making a lot of money, and he gave that up to become a rabbi. So, you know, and then he's and then he started seeing the the horrific nature of the temples. And how they were all money based, and that's why he said, "Listen, you know, that's what, which which eventually got him killed." But um, but you know, he he wanted temple reform. You know, he wasn't looking to make a new religion. He was that's what he wanted. But 
But um, yeah, but that's that's a common theme. And I think that it really is important. One of the things that always drew, drew me to Wicca, now there, now there are people who set up Wiccan churches and things like that. They're just out to get money. They're not true believers. They're just using the name. But um, but there's no, there's no, I, I don't have to pay anyone. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm 24 years in and I haven't paid a dime. You know, I mean, if someone writes a book, I'll, I'll buy a book because that's, that's supporting an author. But I do that with fiction. So it doesn't matter, it makes a difference to me, but I'm not required to do that. You know, there's no requirements whatsoever, except, except you know, don't, don't proselyze, don't, don't, don't evangelize the faith, which is a big thing, never spread it. And, and just, you know, never harm anyone. I mean, I think that that's, yeah. every, that, that's how every faith should be stripped down. Don't hurt me, buddy. Yeah. You know, yeah, do unto others as you want done to yourself. Right. Precisely, precisely. Yeah. And, that, and, that's, and that's, the, yeah. that's the whole of the law. And, and it's a very important thing. And that's what drew me to it. And I said, this is, this is definitely for me. I gave it a year. And I asked the gods that, that I believe in. And I said, listen, you guys got to show me. If I'm going to believe in this, you got to show me whenever I need reassurance, you got to show me something physical. Cause that's the only way I'm going to believe this. And damned if every single time I asked didn't show up. I mean, the craziest, craziest things. And it just, I'm like I, inexpl inexplicable things, you know? And after a while I just said, okay, I get, I get the point. I get the point. I'm with it. I'm with it. I'm with, I'm with you for life. And I never looked back. And I never regretted it. Yeah. And I, and I, and I think that, religion like when people pray to different gods like it's kind of all accessing the same it's invoking the same energy but like it manifests in different ways like uh it, like it, I, yeah. like i've chanted to lord ganesh and like some other hindu gods and i've definitely like like he's supposed to be the remover of obstacles and i felt like is he like through chanting his name like a lot of my anxiety has gone away and i feel like a lot of the obstacles that were in myself have kind of gone away and other people, I have friends who are like Christian and Muslim and stuff like that. And they've talked about praying and, and having that, like things, certain things work out their way because they prayed. And I, I always think like that's kind of um, invoke like the same kind of energy, just like in a different way. Right. It, it could ultimately be that there's only one reality. There was, you know, it's believed there was one spark that's, that set off everything in the universe. So there could be one reality behind that. Chances are it's that it's probably true. There's only one, you know, or, or a reality that's so complex we can't understand it. It's why we make up different religions because it's just what speaks best to us, and because the complexities of you know when, when you think about everything, life, the universe, and everything. Right? You go back to sci-fi. It's it's um, the things that create physics and light and 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 the planets and life and and you know joy and emotion and love. I mean, all those things, I don't know what kind of system can create all those things. I can't conceive of that and no one can. So we give it names, you know, and that's, and that's, uh, that, that, that should be enough. That should be enough. And ultimately we may all be talking about the exact same thing. I think you have a very good point. It's probably all the same thing, you know, the same intent, the same place, the same notion. It's just worded differently or looks different, but it's probably all the same thing. Yeah, and maybe everybody's belief is kind of true for them. Like wherever they believe, they go. Where they die, they go. Yeah. Could very possibly be. And my my, my faith pre uh, preaches reincarnation, which I wholeheartedly believe in. So I, I know that I'm just running around in this shell for this life, and I, and as soon as I'm done, I'm something else. What that is, I have no idea. Yeah. Because I really can't piece what I was before. 
but um, but that's the only thing that makes sense to me. That's what speaks to me. So I'm not going to have a heaven. I'm not going to have anything like this. But I'm going to have a series of lives. And I hope that you know each, the, the concept is you try to do a little bit better with each one until ultimately there's there's there is nirvana. I'm speaking of you know. <clears throat> So yeah, like sort of making the heaven on earth, like through the, right, or yeah. or just or just heaven throughout the galaxies. I mean, like it's or, or throughout yeah. throughout all of creation. <clears throat> I may be reincarnated by you know as, as something on a planet, you know, eight hundred light years from yeah, now. writing yeah. a sci-fi about Earthlings or something. <laughs> exactly, making them, these these crazy like you know things that like used to be used to be apes and now they're people and it's like the hell are you writing about <laughs> you know <laughs> evolution what's wrong with you, you know? yeah and they're on these iphone things what's that <laughs> yeah, these little phones and it's like you know, that's, that's stupid <laughs> yeah so who knows i don't know i don't know i'm open to the ideas but i have no idea no yeah. we definitely give the audience a lot of deep things to think about so i guess <laughs> i hope so i hope so yeah. brother i hope so <laughs> yeah so uh, any final thoughts or things you'd like to say um yeah i mean we're just uh you know stay creative and if you want to try something try it if you want to draw something draw it. if you want to make a film just do it be creative there's going to be no better time than when we we come out of the side of this pandemic there's gonna be no better time to create art you know you can be doing that right now there's a lot, a lot most artists i know are doing that we all we all worked on projects during this we did it all remotely and people came up with beautiful things but um but ultimately you know just stay creative you know stay understanding and just be kind. Just be kind. It's the only thing I can say to anybody. And as I'm, I'm saying that more in the last year than I've ever said before in my life. Just un, try to understand other people. Just be kind. Be understanding. And then, you know, make, make some art along the way. And then everything else, you know, it, everything else in life just becomes that much more easy. That's what I'm finding, at least. All right. Well, uh, yeah. Thank you for coming on. That, thank yeah, you for having me. Good chat. Yeah. And uh, people can keep updated. Patrick Devani on uh social media or? oh yeah 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 just look, look for me and you can also go to uh pdevani.com or you can go to vimeo and look up Deverez films and you'll see every, everything that i can post um publicly right now and there's also a a link to a showcase that showcases all my work so it's all free and anyone can check it out it says Deverez films at, at uh, vimeo or you can go to pdevani.com and get more information about me all right uh and uh for those of you who want to keep updated with BSing with Sean K, it's uh, BS apostrophe ING with S E A N K on uh, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And also on Facebook, there's the BSing with Sean K. And on Instagram, I'm S K N E E S E 1989. And uh, Sean also has everything I do too, like my writing and podcasts and everything else. That's cool. And uh, yes. So that about does it for this episode. I'll catch you on the next one. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Sean. Yep. BSing with. Who? BSing with. What? BSing with.